0: the year 1953. A plane touches down at Smithies Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. G'day, g'day, this is Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid and you're listening to the All Australian Music Stories. This episode is on a living legend of Australian rock and roll, Lonnie Lee. Number one hit records and 60 years in the business have not slowed him down. Backed by his band, the Lee Men, Lonnie was one of the first rockers who broke down the door and become one of the biggest stars in Australia. Still rocking today, Lonnie is a national living treasure and he deserves all the accolades that come his way. I hope you enjoy listening to the career of Lonnie Lee and the Lee Men.
1: Well, everybody keeps on saying, "What's the matter with me? What's the matter with me?" you know, everybody keeps on saying, "What's the matter with me? What's the matter with me?" And it's all, and it's all, I'm in love with. Everybody keeps on saying You don't treat me right You don't treat me right Everybody keeps on saying You don't treat me right You don't treat me right Ain't it so Ain't it so I'm in love with you I found she is a true love I found a new love Lost me all of my life I, I had an old love She, she, she was a cold love
2: defenseless against your arms and the way they hold us nice and i said well it's useless uh-huh. No a-
0: Lonnie, how are you going?
3: I'm pretty good, Joel, what about you?
0: Yeah, good, mate. Good speaking with you. You're basically um, the granddaddy of rock and roll today. Sadly, you're one of the uh, the last men standing, not sadly for you, but you're one of the last men standing in Australian rock and roll.
3: Yes, it's a shame. I never thought that I'd see the day that this was going to happen, but uh, uh, as you say, fortunately for me, I am standing. I still am vertical, and most of the guys have um, not so much passed away, although some have. They've uh, most of them have just uh, retired or given up, and uh, it's uh, a lot of it is not because of their uh, lack of popularity. It's because of uh, the uh, the evolution of music. A lot of the venues now aren't uh, um, presenting too much of our type of music. They're, they're going into the more younger styles, and uh, so it's that sort of stuff. But uh, well, I'm glad
0: to be alive. You're still rocking, and that's the uh, that's the main thing, Lenny. Uh huh. So you uh, grew up on a, a sheep station in Western New South Wales, uh, a town called Rowena. How, how did how did music enter your life?
3: Well, I guess it started very early because my mother played piano and my father played piano, so they were playing all the music of their youth, songs of the twenties and the thirties, and I guess from the early um, parts of the uh, the Second World War. So I was exposed to a lot of that that music. That got me first, and then I was in a uh, t- the church choir, so I would get uh, lots of music uh, there. We'd have a rehearsals on Wednesdays and then the, the two, uh, two church meetings on the Sundays. So I was pretty much um, um, swamped in with, uh, with music. And then in the mid-50s, uh, the 50s style of music, like the pre-rock and roll, the crooners and all that, I started listening to that type of music. And then, of course, uh, later in the late 50s, uh, rock and roll came along and I got into that. So music's really been a part of my life
0: um, uh, right from the start. So people such as Johnny Ray and Elvis and, and these sort of people had a, had an influence on you?
3: Oh, yes, absolutely. Because um, uh, Johnny Ray, I guess, was the first pop star to have an influence uh, on me, although I liked other people at the same time. I liked Frankie Lane and I liked uh, Nat King Cole. They were the two um, ones that I liked. Um, but there were many, many artists that that I liked. I, I, I maybe not particularly liked the artists themselves and all everything they did, but I might have liked a particular song that they did, you know. So I had many influences um, along the way, but uh, I, I guess Presley and um, and uh, Johnny Ray would be the, the primary ones, you know.
0: Okay, yes. Yeah, so in 1953, you um you leave the farm and you head to, to boarding school in Sydney. Uh, it must have been a, a bit of a culture shock for you, obviously, heading from the sheep station to the Big Smoke.
3: Yes, it was, but it's, it was something that um, uh, we expected because – uh, it happened to my father and uh, uh and uh, most of the people who had properties um um out uh, out from the major cities and that the, to get the kids um, um educated well you had to really send them to uh, to boarding school so i was sent to trinity grammar and uh, actually i went there in 1946 when i was six spent about eight years as a board, boarding boarder there and then um uh, left school when i was um 15 and uh, but most of the time was uh, was uh, spent as a boarder in Trinity Grammar. And it, I didn't particularly like, I look back at it now and I didn't particularly like it, although I do see the uh, the incredible benefits that I received from it.
0: And so once you left school, you entered the, the bank uh, as a bank clerk, is that right?
3: Yeah, yeah. My grandfather on my mother's side wanted, he was in um, uh, bookkeeping and accounting and uh, stuff like that. And he wanted me to to go follow uh, his um, lead, and so he got me into the national bank. Which, in those days, I was only fifty-five. He was. Uh, it was very difficult to get into the bank, especially in the national bank. It was like a uh, um, a closed shop, really. You had to you, to help to get in there. You had to know someone, and it was um, it was one of those types of things. So anyway, he got me in there. But I didn't last too long because I didn't like it. You know, so I I left. Uh, I left the, the bank there and then eventually I got into, uh, uh, into Radio 2GB. I liked uh, the thought of maybe becoming a radio announcer or something like that. That was more my style. Um, so I, uh, I followed that lead.
0: Talking about radio stations, at the time, uh, one of the leading stations, 2UE, had a, uh, a weekly talent show called Amateur Hour. And uh, you you entered Amateur Hour and uh, you, well, you firstly auditioned. What was that, your first sort of major performance? Well, I
3: suppose well, first, um, I guess, major public performance because there was an audience It was in a little theatre um, in Sydney and so there was an audience there, I think about 300 people um, in the theatre. So that was maybe my first um, um, go of that um, scene. But, however, my first, very, very first public per- uh, performance, um, I found out, um, I although I remember it vaguely, but I found out uh, proof of it just recently was when I was uh, – about uh, uh, three years of age, I was um, um, uh, designated to be one of the rats in the Pied Piper at the Royal Theatre in Sydney from the uh, from one of the little uh, little schools that I was in at the at the time a um, a day school type of thing. So that was so that was my first performance when I was about three. But uh, other than that, um, yes, it was the TUW um, um,
0: Amateur Hour that you know that got me into an audience when I was an adult. So we're called 2UW, Your first solo performance, I suppose.
3: Yeah, I guess uh, that would be pretty much it, yeah.
0: Um, and you performed um, Heartbreak Hotel on the show, and you came second to an opera singer, apparently. So, um, so you, you, you made, a, made a name for yourself at the start. Did you ever come across the opera singer later on in, during your career, or did you ever cross paths?
3: No, I didn't. She was, a, 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 she was a, um, just a regular lady, um, you know, a housewife who, who wanted to do something. Um, in uh wanted to sing and then decide to go into the amateur house, so she went in that but and of course in those days i guess maybe even still today you know the you sing loudly and, and all that stuff and you get the uh, you get a lot of the uh, applause um and i came second but i never saw her again and the guy who came third was a guy from the uh, second world war he'd come back from the he uh he played the spoons so uh, <laughs> yeah, a lot, yeah. lot of the old guys from the war they played the spoons and the um and the, the saw, and they uh, would bend, bend a saw that um, uh, for cutting wood and go wow, 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 like that. So a lot of the guys did that, but uh, um, it was a fun time. It was the first time, actually, I found out a little bit later on, it was the first time that, uh, um, to our knowledge, that a, a Presley song was, reco- uh, was um, sung live on, uh, on Australian um, radio, here television hadn't started yet so it was just radio but uh Heartbreak Hotel was very new and hardly anyone knew who this Elvis guy was at the time because it had only been released about three months before in uh, in
0: America well that's the thing Lonnie you've been at the forefront of Australian rock and roll basically haven't you from the at the very pointy end you, you are one of the people that was there at the the dawning of the new age and you know people thought it was going to be a fad and it had last a few months few years maybe and you know yeah. 50 60 years onwards it's 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 only ever getting stronger it's rock and roll obviously it has its it's changes and it's hip-hop and it's rap and it's whatever but it still has the basis of rock and roll and it's obviously something you must be very proud of yes
3: i enjoy i've been very very lucky having to experience this you know i mean a lot of a lot of young guys like me a lot of young teenagers they um wanted to do lots of other things whether or not some of them uh their dreams their career dreams came true um Um, Maybe uh, most of them uh, didn't. They just suffered in a way through life, uh, doing something that they didn't particularly want to do, but it gave them a living. Um, I was just uh, uh, really, really blessed, and nothing to do with uh, what I did. It was just uh, my destiny to uh, to be doing something that I loved to do then and uh, uh, still love to do today, just as much as I ever did. And that's the thing,
0: you know. And and seeing you do well, Lonnie, and um, basically. In rock and roll was one of the, the major catalysts of rock and roll in Australia, I suppose, was the movie The Blackboard Jungle. Did you get to see the movie?
3: Yes, I did. When it came out, I remember the, the audience went absolutely crazy, um, I being one of them. And uh, yes, that, that, was, uh, that had quite an influence on me, but not just me. Most people that got into rock and roll, even people in the United States and England, um, that movie did, uh, did more than, uh, than a lot of people even claim today. Because that was the uh, that was the first time we saw we heard the 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 great um, sounds of uh, of rock and roll, and when you when when they were in a theatre really turned up loud, it was uh, just absolutely phenomenal. So it really we uh, many of us left there Johnny O'Keefe and Alan Dale and lots of the different guys at the time, Dick Richards. We left that um, uh, those theatres hearing um, Blackboard Jungle and Rock Around the Clock. I guess thinking, wow, this is the music for me, you know.
0: So I suppose it's like being hit in the uh, hit in the face for a big uh, piece of four B two or something like that. You know, you guys have been listening to the Johnny Rose and the Sinatra's and and the crooners yep. of the day, and then all of a sudden he's he's Bill Haley and he's rocking around the clock and it yeah and it's you know the industry that spawned from there. Obviously, it was you know the blues music was was the basis of rock and roll, but you know once you once he Bill Haley got it to the masses, it's it hasn't stopped. Well, it was
3: so exciting, you know. It, uh, prior to that, as you said, the crooners. Were there and they were beautiful, lovely singers, and the songs were beautiful songs, and they were produced beautifully. And um, um, I guess that was in a way was part of the high point of, uh, of radio production and song production and and songwriting. But as far as uh, excitement was concerned, it was the rock and roll. It certainly brought that along and rockabilly and the, and the the country style of uh, of rock and roll as well as the big band style, Little Richard and uh, um, Lloyd Price and all the uh, all all those great. Uh, great artists, so rock and roll certainly did it for us teenagers at the time, you
0: know. A lot of those artists that you just mentioned, uh, you you performed with. So we'll we'll get to them in a, in a little moment. But before then, you in, in February '58, you you head to the Trocadero, the famous Trocadero Ballroom, and um, you with another dozen or so performers, you enter the Elvis competition and you win. Um, obviously, again showing Elvis's uh, influence on you. But one of the the main things of, of you know a stroke of luck for you, I suppose, the compare of the day was uh, Johnny O'Keefe and you know, the great J O K sees something in you, and and you guys start to form a friendship from there.
3: Yes, although it wasn't as cut and dried as that, it was. Uh, um, I went in this in this uh, this contest at the Trocadero because they uh, uh, the contest was run because MGM, who were releasing uh, Elvis's first movie, Love Me Tender, they weren't too sure of how many people were going to turn up to see the movie because Elvis was was uh, was not very well known at all. The name Elvis and uh, and only a few of his songs. Are, were out there and was certainly not like radio today, where they were blasted right through everywhere. They they were just played um, uh, very sparingly on radio, so they were not too sure how many people would turn up to see Love Me Tender. So they thought we better um, do some promotion. So they uh, part of that promotion was to run uh, a contest to find who Australia's Elvis Presley was, and uh, hopefully to get some uh, some press. And it worked because uh, I, I went in there and I, I just happened to win the thing. And then, uh, of course, we did get some press. The, the next Sunday on a, a paper called the Sunday Sun, they gave us a full page. And I think that was, to my knowledge, that was the first time rock and roll was was given any real um, major attention in Sydney press. And uh, and that was it. But uh, as you say, oh, um, Johnny O'Keefe was the uh, um, he wasn't so much the the, uh, the compare. He was there um, part of it. There main main his main thing was that. Part of what I won when I won that contest was the next Monday they were starting a uh, three weeks of uh, dance um, rock and roll dancing on the Monday night at the Trocadero, and they had O'Keefe there to um, t- to show off this guy in his red suit. This is the guy that's going to be doing the dances. So um, part of my uh, my um, prize was to have a performance. At, uh, at, this, um, um, at the new dance starring the king of uh, rock and roll. Of course, he was, was the only one doing rock and roll, that, but, uh, uh, but that was it. But we, we didn't so much, so much form a relationship then. We did um, recognise the fact that uh, just a few months before um, at the 2UW uh, the Amateur Hour, I had done um, a Johnny Ray thing and, and about a month before me doing it, he'd done a Johnny Ray thing. So it was um, uh, we had that in common. But it wasn't, I guess, maybe until maybe two years later on when Six O'Clock Rock started that we we got a friendship going and and which lasted all his life.
0: Unfortunately, there's no recording of you doing Heartbreak Hotel. However, in 1959, you did release another Elvis song, That's Alright Mama. So I'm sure this gives us some sort of insight to how you would have sounded when you are rocking the house on Amateur Hour. Well, that's alright,
1: mama. That's right for you. That's all right, mama, just any way you do That's all right, that's all right But that's all right, mama, any way you do Well, mama, she done told me, papa done told me too So that girl who blew away, she ain't no good for you That's all right, that's all right
0: So um, basically you, you head back to the farm and sadly one of your relatives died, I think it was your grandfather died, and you had to head back to the farm and you stayed there about a year or so, did you say?
3: Um, yes, about a year because I my father wanted me to stay forever, of course, but I uh, um, the music had got to me and I really wanted to, to continue it because i'd I'd had some uh, some great things happening with my, my little rockabilly band. We were working every night of the week and and doing great business, building up a really good fan following around the place and uh that was through nineteen fifty seven and then at the end of nineteen fifty seven I had a car a car accident and uh and right at the same time, my grandfather died, so my father said that's it back to the property. so I went back there and um, after about a year, he said, Okay well, you can go back, go back. I see that music's really part of your." You, you, what you want to do go back there and see what happens and if it works well okay and uh, so that's what i did i came back and uh, 1959 was uh i started another band and uh and uh, then later on got on t- tv recorded and that was it
0: yeah so when you when you came back um you, you approach festival and um, you're in good company. Some uh, person uh, who, who ran festival was a man named by Ken Taylor and he'd b- basically turned everybody down <laughs> from the Deltones, the Fawns, JOK. Everybody sort of auditioned for him or said something and you know, he, he sent them packing, so you're in good company. But festival turns you down and yeah. all, the, all the contacts that you'd built up over these, these years that, you know, the, that, as you said, with the Rockabilly band you're performing um, – JOK, he he remembers you and and takes you on as, as his manager or your as your manager, um, introduces you to Lee Gordon and uh, with with lead on Records, you you sign a five year deal. That must have been something that you thought, wow, here here I go.
3: Yes, it didn't quite uh, work exactly the same as, like that, but it was I guess um, ultimately just skimming through it that it, uh, it did. I, I um, as you say, Festival Records knocked me on the head, and the reason why I got I had the thing with Festival is because. When I was, during the year I was um, uh, on the property at Rowena, they had a contest in Walgett and I went, everybody all uh, around the place wanted me to go in this contest. So I went in to the contest in Walgett and uh, and I won it. And one of the uh, the people who was the judge happened to be a festival record um, rep. In those days they had uh, uh, rep- sales representatives that would go around to all the record shops around the country and, uh, and order in the different records and things so anyway he said to me he said you know i think you should uh, um uh, try festival when i go back to to sydney I, i'll put a word in for you and he did and they they wrote to me and they said when you come to sydney um, come and audition which i did and, and and then got knocked on the head and um so that was uh that was it but with um with uh uh six o'clock rock um it, it was a bunch of girls in sydney who um who were sort of i guess great fans and they'd follow me around to all the different shows that we did and they um they one of them knew uh, johnny o'keefe and they had said to me listen we've arranged would you like to go to um, um uh, to go and see johnny o'keefe at his uh, his house uh about six o'clock rock so i said yeah okay that'd be great so anyway i went there and uh, and that's when we renewed the um the conversations that we'd had before about the uh, winning the Elvis contest and the Johnny Ray stuff and all that. And, uh, and that's when, uh, when we, we started our friendship again, he was never my manager. He, I guess he wasn't really even a mentor. He was, uh, we, we were, we were friends. We had uh, quite a lot of, a lot in common. And, um, uh, although he was five years older than me, but we, 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 uh, uh, we hit it off on, on various levels and we, we stayed friends for many, many years.
0: So sort of kindred spirits, I suppose. Yeah. Yes, that,
3: that's a good way of putting it, yeah.
0: Yeah. So um, when was the first time you met Lee Gordon?
3: Well, that was, uh, I suppose, that would be the uh, toward the end of 1959 when I was, I'd been doing Six O'Clock Rock. And um, um, Alan Dale, who was one of the, uh, um, not Alan Dale, Alan um, Heffernan, who was, uh, I guess, uh, um, Lee Gordon's right-hand man. And he, he approached me and he said, would you like to do a record? and i said uh yes he said okay well you can d- do an ep which is four songs so uh get some songs rehearse them and record them anyway we i, I did that and during that time um he introduced me to, uh, to to lee down there and he was he was really nice um uh, to him to to me i remember going into his office for the first time and the his office was all white the desk was white the the um, um the carpet was white the walls Everything was uh, was white, including um, Lee. And anyway, uh, uh, the the big wall was uh, had this giant photo of Elvis on it. The whole side of the whole size of the wall. It was just Elvis's face, and it uh, had had uh, a signature on there, um, something like um, "Thanks for the help, Lee," something like that. Because when before Lee had come out to Australia, and then even later on, he'd um, uh, promoted some of um, Elvis's concerts way back in the very, very early stages, and, and Elvis uh, didn't forget it. Anyway, that was the first time that I met Lee, and then met him a few times um, later on as well, but it was Alan Hefflin who was the guy who first really um, noticed whatever talent I had, you know.
0: So with that first uh, album, or the first EP that you put out, one of the singles was Ain't It So, written by Johnny O'Keefe, and it was uh, backed by the DJs and the, the Deltones, and that's a rockin' tune, Lonnie.
1: Well, everybody keeps on saying, "What's the matter with me?
4: What's
1: the matter with me?" Well, you know everybody keeps on saying, "What's the matter with me? What's the matter with me?" And it's so, and it's so, I'm in love with you. Everybody keeps on saying you don't treat me right. You don't treat me right. Everybody keeps on saying you don't treat me right. You don't treat me right. and
3: it so, oh, oh, so. I'm in love with you. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, <coughs> that was actually an, an accident because my first um, single that I was going to do was um, a, a song that I liked from, from uh, Bobby Freeman, a song called Shame on You, Miss Johnson. Be so nice. yeah. And uh, um, it was a heavily beat, a heavily drum beat, uh, percussion type song, and I liked it very much. So I I recorded I, record, I, I uh, rehearse that, and then I didn't have another song for for side B. And in those days, of course, the records you had side A, which was predicted for the hit, and the side B, which um, DJs never played, and it was just for whoever bought the record, they could they had two songs anyway we, because I didn't have a side B um, um, Johnny o, uh, O'Keefe and I decided to sit down at the piano there and uh, and in about 20 minutes we wrote ain't it so now it was a throw we thought it was a throwaway song just to, just to fill up the space uh, but anyway when uh, Tony Withers in Sydney at 2SM in Sydney he was like the first DJ here and Rolf Harris a uh, um, uh, not Rolf, um, oh God the guy in Melbourne just his name. Stand, Rolf. <laughs> Yeah, Stan. There you go. I knew it was a Roff somewhere. Stan, <laughs> yeah. Um, when Stan Rofe heard it, it the same as Tony Withers, he decided, "Oh, wow. This is uh, this is much better than the side A. We're going to play this. And plus, as well, it's an Australian composition, and it, it was the first Australian composition to hit the uh, rock and roll, to hit the uh, the airwaves. So anyway, they uh, they played it, and of course, that was my first uh, number one and my first uh, big hit. And I still do it, as I do uh, um, all my number ones and, uh, and top tens. I still do on my shows.
0: Yeah, definitely. As you said, it went number one Sydney, uh, it went number four Melbourne. So it's um it was one. It's in those grey areas. Obviously, you know the the way the aria, Arias are these days. It's a lot easier to work out what records sold and whatever back then. But uh, these days, compared to back then, but officially your first first national number one was uh, was released in um, February of 1960, "Starlight Star Bright," um, and again another song that that just holds up today.
3: Yes, that's a different, a di- very different style. That's sta- uh, that started a, uh, a style that became, uh, I guess, recognizable as, as my um, my uh, footprint, I suppose. Um, and that was the offbeat guitar, the un-cha, 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 which I put in most of my records um, um, that followed th- uh, through that, because it was a successful uh, style in style, I stop Right, as you said, it went to went to number one, and and and, and uh, uh, if if the sales were done correctly as they do to today and audited, it uh it would have been um um uh, several gold records because it did phenomenal business but at the same time it um uh it established this um offbeat that i uh i used all the time and uh, i still once again i still do that in fact that would that and i found a new love would have to be my most requested songs even right up to today 60 years later
0: yeah, I'm sure when you perform you couldn't get away without doing those in each in each gig you know you'd, there'd be a right basically if you come to see a Lonnie Lee show and you didn't get starlight Starbright, you'd be you'd be questioning wouldn't you
3: I think I'd be um, be stoned to death
0: yeah <laughs> and um, and showing the popularity of that song it stayed in the charts for 21 weeks and 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 as we're saying you know the the auditing and 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 what not back then the the charts were mainly you know basically the jukeboxes of the day um, and the radio stations. And and it's, you know, again, showing the, the strength of that song. It's still being played on, you know, the, the the rock and roll stations today. Unfortunately, like most most things, musical styles change and whatever and you the stations that were playing it back then. But community radio stations are, are, are huge supporters of, of rock and roll. And, it, you know, if you, you tune into a community radio station, you're always hearing a Lonnie Lee hit.
3: Yes, I'm very lucky there that they, they do. They, they a lot of the uh, the pre- presenters in these uh, in the stations around Australia, and there's many stations, uh, several hundred. They um, uh, and they've all got at least one um, program that plays um, uh, records from the fifties and the early sixties. And so I'm I'm very very lucky that they I, I had so many hits back then that they they uh, find it easy enough to find a Lonnie Lee song to play to fill up the space. You know, so I'm still I'm very blessed for that to happen
0: yeah exactly well 1960 was just the um you know every artist has a you know peaks and troughs and whatever throughout their career but 1960s was your your year on the charts um and and in 1960 you had um well ain't it so was released in at the end of december so virtue it was selling in 1960 um he had starlight star bright yes indeed i do um it reached number 13 on the national charts need your tender kiss?
1: Yes, indeed I do. Do I realize what I miss? Yes, indeed I do. Do I cry? Yeah, yeah. Still I'm dry? Yeah, yeah. Over you? Yeah.
0: Love so much. Yes, indeed, On the B-side of Yes, Indeed, I Do was a track called Love a Doll.
1: Love a doll. a, love, love, love a doll. love, a doll. Love a doll. Love a doll. you the cutest love a doll that I ever did, ever seen. Let me tell you, Love the you were men meant for me. From the first time that I saw you, how I for your cuddly jars. Love the Dah, love the rings before you, you. Let me rock you in
0: my And then, as you said, uh, I found a new love. It was a double A-sided hit with Defenseless on the other side. I She
1: is a true love I found a new love Lost me all of my life
0: it was a double-sided hit and on the other side was another fantastic song Defenseless then it was you guys the guitar a couple of mics and bang off you go there's the record
3: and that was pretty much it we'd just sort of go in there we'd rehearse it um um or 99% of the time we'd rehearse it in a hall somewhere and then we'd uh, then we'd go into the studio and we'd have maybe a 3 hour session or a 4 hour session and we'd do um uh, one or two tracks sometimes even more um tracks and as you said there would be um uh, my band in there, the Lehman in there, or, or um, part of my band and part of Johnny O'Keefe's band, the DJs, and we'd do that. And then uh, at the same time, because everything was recorded at the same time, I'd have either the Deltones in there or the uh, the Fawns uh, or the Flanagan's, and uh, or a mixture of both, or uh, sometimes Claire Pool and the and the um, uh, the Channel Seven singers um, so it was a whole sort of mix up but it was all done at the same at the same time there was the first off it was um, all done on a single quarter inch um, tape and uh, then then it was done two track um, um, and then it was done um, and then later on many men well I guess about 1964 65 that went to four track but most all my hits were on either mono and uh, or, um, or or two track but still mono
0: and were these mainly recorded at the uh, Festival Studios at Piermont?
3: Yes, in the Harris Street uh, Studios, not the not the studios that, that um, the building that today they talk about. Oh, that's where Festival was. It's um, they would, um, that that one in that lane. Whatever, I forget where it is now, but still at Piermont. It um, it was only there from the seventies. Um, the original Festival records was on in Harris Street. I think two twenty one or something like that. Harris Street, Piermont. It's now an apartment block. But it was uh, it was there, and everything was done there in a small studio, which was as big as maybe a reasonably si- a reasonable size um, lounge room of uh, of uh, today, maybe twelve by fifteen, I suppose, maybe at the maximum. And uh, and uh, sometimes because if there was too much spill into the uh, into the microphone while I was singing, I'd go out the door into a little hallway, and I'd I'd uh, be out there singing um, there. Um, so that there wouldn't be too much of the uh, the band coming in through there, and then our um, uh, initially our, our echo was um, spread down into the um, the toilets, the office toilets down in the in the uh, in the bottom. That's why we had to record mainly at night when the office uh, people weren't there, because so uh, that no one could go into the toilet and start flushing in the middle of a song. So the would um, have a speaker at one end and then a uh, a, m- a microphone at the other end uh, other room just like in a bathroom and that's where we we'd get our uh, initial um, echoes from so it was it was looking back at it now it was it was pretty prehistoric but, uh, we yeah,
0: got rudimentary. Some,
3: but we we got some wonderful sounds you listen to those songs today and they're uh, as
0: you said they really stand up because it's basically what you guys put down you, you feel the energy off it straight away because that's the energy's being uh, i suppose Played from you guys straight through to that record, straight through the needle through the speakers to the to us listening, and and as I said, fifty years down the track, it's still it's still and music. And um, who was the producer? Was that mainly Robert Isdale back in those days?
3: Yes, he wasn't so much a producer. We we, we produced our own stuff really. He was uh, he was the engineer. He was very good at it too. Uh, he was a good engineer. But mind you, once again, as you said, it was very rudimentary. the uh, the uh, The panel only he had four. Four, um, uh, knobs on it really big knobs like the big old radio uh, radio panels and um, that went through that he he, he um, like a lot of the guys in america include including sun records uh, sam phillips over there they got a, a, a tape recorder the old um, one track tape recorder and they they built another head into it so that when it was played you hear um dit and then a little bit later on dit so you got dit dit and that gave us that initial um tape delay well he he uh, he did that. He'd do the cutting. He'd do the mastering. He did absolutely everything. But he had nothing to do with what songs we did, or how how they were played, or what was played, or what was uh, um, it was sung. It was all it was all um, us ourselves.
0: He was sort of more like the technical technical guy on the the recording side of things. And you guys were producing your own records, picking yeah. your songs. Um, and I yeah, know was- you mentioned Alan Heffernan before. And obviously Alan was a, a you know the One of the driving forces of Australian rock and roll at the time, Um, and as part of Lee Gord organisation, he'd be sent um, sent records, and they'd pick songs. Did you guys used to sit in and listen to these uh, these new American tracks that had come out, and just sort of try and pick which was a good hit or which wasn't? And yeah, were were you part of that process?
3: Yes, um, on and off it was made. It wasn't so much um, Alan; it they'd come from uh, from uh, publishing houses because publishing places were uh, music publishers were been around for a while in, in a, um, or just a few of them, Alberts and a, and a few others, but um, many of them sort of sprung up mainly from uh, different guys from England coming out and uh, starting them or some Australians that would do them as a, uh, a franchise type thing from United States. and they would bring out um, they would send out all the, all the what they call acetates, which were, were songs that were, were put were recorded in America uh, usually by the producer of the um, songwriters. And they would be—they um, weren't on a record that had been um, pressed and, and put on sale. They'd only been um, cut on, uh, on onto the uh, a very soft um type of record which could only be played more, uh, more than likely 10 or 15 times before you couldn't really understand it, it was just uh, like a like a, a hard wax anyway we'd be sent out these acetates and we'd listen to these songs and naturally the publishers were, were very anxious for us to record their song so that they would get the um, we would get the royalties so sometimes i'd go to lee's um Records and I'd be I'd sit in a uh, um, in a room there for maybe three or four hours and I'd maybe play a 100, 150 um, of these acetates until I heard a song that I particularly liked or sometimes I in fact most times I I uh, would go out of there without a song at all and some of my songs were were weren't, weren't from the United States they were um, Australian written songs you know um, I found a new love was an Australian um, written song although um, and
0: that was the uh, Kipner no, wasn't it.
3: Nat Kepner, he did that. That that was his first, the first thing that he had um, released was um, uh, I Found a New Love, and then I also released um, Sit Around and Talk from him also a little bit later. I changed the songs around, but in those days we didn't worry about credits or or, um, um, publishing rights or anything like that. I just did it and didn't get any credits or anything for it at all. But um, uh, in the United States they were starting to do that with Presley and lots of other artists there that their names were put onto the uh, onto the record and, and they got a uh, percentage of the uh, the royalties because they they changed the uh, initial song around to something that was would suit them and would eventually sell but i, I didn't take any advantage of that so uh, uh, a lot of that stuff just went by the way but um uh, quite a few of the the songs i guess a little bit later on i got yes indeed i do i got from that type of process, listening to a bunch of songs, I got that. Um, uh, Defenseless, I, I got that uh, specifically was sent to me by, um, um, by Otis Blackwell, who'd written Don't Be Cruel for, uh, for Elvis and Return to Sender later on and, and a whole bunch of other, uh, other songs all shook up. And so uh, I did Defenseless, and that was a great song um, for me. So it was a, it was a different process. It was lots of different processes to get actually get a song to record.
0: And how did you find uh, Starlight, Star Bright in that same sort of process?
3: Yes, that was a, 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 the same initial sort of process. It was uh, was given to me by a guy who just started uh, publishing here, a guy called um, um, uh, Jack Argent, and he'd just started a franchise for Leeds Music from uh, America, and part of his first um, his first. Uh, Companies that he was representing here was a company in the United States called Robin Hood Music, and uh, Robin Hood Music was owned by Joe uh, John mariscalco who would written "Ready Teddy," "Rip It Up," "Good Golly Miss Molly," and all those great songs for Little Richard and Elvis. And um, and he'd said to me, he said, "Look, I've got a couple of songs here I'd uh, you know, like to have a listen to." And one of them was um, uh, "Starlight like, Star Bright." It was done very different to what I did, but uh, I listened to it and I thought, "Oh, that sounds that sounds cute." And so I, I recorded it. But once again as I said very different to what the original was
0: TV back at the time as you said it was a new industry just starting to just starting to grow as well and rock and roll was a, a major part of TV and um, bringing the teenagers to the to television set and watching it and six o'clock rock bandstand rumpus room teen time you were on all these programs it must have been a very exciting time as well to be to be forming in this new new medium
3: oh yes it was a great time it was very exciting to do uh, to do uh, television my first television um, show um was uh, was actually before um well i guess right at the very very beginning of uh, television here and also rock and roll and i went up with my rockabilly band on a show called sydney tonight and it was done um out at um, our transit studios which they had before they uh, the, which uh, became later on channel seven they um they had a uh, studios out in um uh, uh, near french's forest and so there was a program out there. The first, I guess, the first um, Tonight Show sort of program it was, as I said, it was called Sydney Tonight. So I went on there. That was my first. That was 1957. And uh, then um, later on, in fifth, from 59 on, I, I did all the shows. I as say, uh, Bandstand, Six O'clock Rock, Team Time, Saturday Date. I mean, it just they just went on and on and on. Um, the um, the Hi-Fi um, show in um, in Melbourne, um, uh, Woody's Teen Time or whatever they were in Adelaide. They, they just were everywhere and and we did them. In fact, uh, quite remarkably, a lot of people wouldn't realise now today. But uh, each of the television shows, or maybe not each, or maybe not all of them, but most of the primary cities like Dubbo and uh, and Tamworth and Orange, they uh, television they had their own television shows. They had like Orange Tonight, um, Tamworth Tonight, that sort of thing. And we would go out and do shows, um, uh, do appearances on their shows as well. Of course, now there's nothing there. It's just a building with. Um,
0: that's a feed from sydney and that's the end of it but in those days they had their own shows so yeah everything's syndicated now and um and and to these country kids it must have been a uh, an amazing thing you like yourself sort of at Rowena in a country town and all of a sudden um in rolls the rock and roll stars of the day that you'd been watching on television and as you said they're on your on your local stations and it just must have been a uh, an amazing time it's sort of like uh, i suppose they talk about Bieber fever and and Beatlemania and um back at those, that day it must have just been um amazing to to see these kids letting off steam to to this new form of music called rock and roll
3: Yes, it was. It was just as you said. It was just like Beatlemania, or if you see the early Elvis clips and the early kids going screaming and absolutely going going bananas. That's exactly what it was. It was no different, uh, no less than um, than those guys experienced. We would go into a town um, here, and uh, the kids would run uh, if we were on tour or whatever, or just driving through. The um, kids would run out of, out of the shops and leave there. Leave their posts in their offices and come chase us down the street. They'd write all over our cars with lipstick, "We love you," with the telephone numbers and 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 phone numbers and God knows what else. And then, of course, on the other side of it, there were the guys who were jealous that their girls were doing that, and they'd get their pennies and they'd run it along along the side of the Duco of the cars, or, or uh, uh, tear off the um, tear off the uh, the windscreen wipers, or, or break the headlights, or so stick stick knives in the tires. So it was a, it was a two-edged sword sort of thing you know but it was extremely exciting but and the same thing would happen here in sydney i remember uh, quite a number of times being actually being chased down george street you know with girls running out of stores and chasing us once they recognize us they'd be hanging out of buildings and screaming out hi hi you know it was a a lot of fun
0: did that ever wear thin though like you i suppose the first half dozen times it might have been all right but then when you're trying to get a haircut or have a drink or a hamburger or something like that it's um yeah did that ever wear thin
3: well, that sort of stuff didn't. From that uh, uh, that uh, overt stuff. The only time it did was if I'd be uh, if I'd go to a restaurant with some uh, uh, you know different people, or even just myself and my family. We'd go, and uh, everyone would would look. So I'd be very, very. I was very shy anyway, but I would I would be very conscious and very aware that as I put some food into my mouth, that everyone sort of uh, turning around and watching. You know, so I that became a little. Um, a little hard to take so I, I went out less um, until that sort of subsided uh, years later but um, no I, I, I enjoyed the lot really um, I thought it was a wonderful expression for these kids to to have that and uh, maybe if I was on the other side of it if uh, I hadn't have been a success myself but, uh, but I like somebody I'd be doing the same as
0: them you know yeah, exactly. And one of the spots they they let off steam was the uh, the old tin shed, the Sydney Stadium, and you perform there many, many times. It's grown in stature, I suppose, but at, at the time it must have been a place where it was just uh, it was like a different planet in there.
3: Yes, because it, it was um it wasn't a pretty place. It was just made out of co- corrugated iron and it was uh, it wasn't well made at all. It' had have been standing for well, maybe close to uh, sixty, seventy years, maybe even more. And uh, it was a place uh, mainly for uh, for wrestling and for boxing. That was that was it until Lee Gordon um, needed a, a big place um, that held a lot of people uh, for his uh, his shows when he started bringing out these big American entertainers. So that's how that uh, that got it. And he decided he couldn't have the entertainer just facing one one um, um, part of the uh, of the stadium because it was a big round um, thing. So he uh, they invented this. Uh, the stage that had, it was like a big flat round platform, like a record. So it would go very slowly to go around, um, 360 degrees and it, was, it would hit a break and then it would go back around, um, the opposite side. So, uh, um, it was very slow, but at the same time, you had to be hanging on to the with your feet or onto the the mic because you could um, you could move, especially when it came along to the end and it would hit the uh, that brake part and reverse and go around again. But it was um, it was a great venue. The the sound was uh, was ghastly. You couldn't uh, you couldn't really hear too much at all, especially with everyone um, screaming. It held ten thousand people, and everyone screaming and echoing in this tin shed because that's literally what it was um the uh you you couldn't hear yourself mind you this was the days before fallback um existed before we had monitors or anything like that we uh we never heard ourselves anyway. We just uh, sang into into the microphones and hoped that it went
0: out there. Yeah, we're well, speaking with Cole Lofnan recently, and he he said that he thought the sound system was actually the sound system that they used for the boxing. So he said they he didn't think that they actually brought anything in, and and people like Sinatra and and the like were were performing through something that a weekend before they were announcing the 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 boxes to the ring, basically. So uh, it was very primitive, but again, it was I suppose the energy that you guys threw off from the stage is, is what made it. And, um, you did a lot of the, uh, the Lee Gordon big shows and the tours. What were some of the standout performances that you did there or all people that you performed with?
3: Oh, I guess I liked them all. I liked them because all of the artists were, were, um, you know, well-known at the time. And it was a, a, a privilege to be performing, um, on stage with them. I, um, I noticed that none of them were really, um, outstanding to where the like like, uh, Uh, Presley or something like that who had this incredible uh, charisma these were all um, much the same guys as we all we all were and they all just happened to have good records going for them at the time some of them were really nice guys and I formed great friendships with them and some of those friendships are still today um, whilst others were very quiet or very shy or they were kept kept aside or they were sort of um, up themselves a bit so it it, uh, you know typical human parameter from from this
0: to that you know not understating the uh the level of performer that you or the level of stardom that you had at that day in at the time in 1960 you were voted the number one uh, six o'clock rock did a poll and you were voted the number one performer on six o'clock rock and at the end of the year uh five of your songs were included in the top 20 selling songs in australia of that day so i'm sure um the the american performers went away sort of looking at you and thinking wow this guy's this guy knows what he's doing
3: I guess so. I hear the stories to, uh, today, or the last, you know, the last twenty years, from the different guys that I I knew back then, and they said the same, <laughs> the same sort of thing. Back in those days, I didn't even think about that at all. I just, I just loved to sing and loved to be, get there, you know, be there with the band and uh, and do what we did. So I just did that, and and I've never been competitive, never been competitive, even way back in those days, um, uh, from when I started, even right up to the to now. Um, I'm not competitive, I don't compete with anybody, I don't um, um, compare myself to anybody, I'm just me doing what I love to do and if I'm successful at it, that's really tremendous I, uh, and I hope that everybody else um, has the same love for their music and is uh, as successful as they wish to be as well.
0: Yeah, definitely, that's a great attitude to have. Your chart success didn't, didn't stop in, in 1960, in 61 uh, you had to Sit Around and Talk to me, um, that was a, another big hit for you. worry about nothing, no need
1: to worry about no nothing, need worry, no need to worry you see, no need to worry you see, all you gotta do is turn down the lights and sit around and talk with me,
0: and then you followed it up with uh, Baby Baby Bye Bye, it was, a, it was a top ten hit also for you. Everything you see
1: is wrong. Telling me so long, what am I going to do? Cause there's just no more dreams to dream, no more kids to cry. Nothing left to say Baby, maybe, maybe bye bye.
0: How did you come across that song?
3: Well, that was a song that I liked. I liked Jerry Lee Lewis, and uh, um that was one of his... uh um, songs that hardly anybody um, knew and so it was I liked his um of course whole lot of shaking and all those things that uh that he did but I liked um um some of the songs that were on the b-side uh, uh, like it'll be me that was a great uh, great song that I liked um Cliff Richard liked it because he recorded it a little bit later on as well but um uh Baby Baby Bye Bye was one of those songs that was sort of half country and half um and half rock and roll, and so I uh, I liked it enough to uh, to record it. I just recorded whatever I liked. You know, I I never had any uh, preconditions about uh, what I was going to record or what I wasn't going to record. I just uh, if I liked something and uh, and it went well with the audiences, um, I recorded
0: it another another one of your big chart hits was sitting by the river um that was again released in 61 as well um and and it was it was in the charts for 16 weeks so it it reached number 20 its highest peak was 20 but it was in the charts for 16 weeks so it's obviously a song that just hung around
3: Yes, that's also a popular song at the shows um sitting by the river that that's a, a great song that was written by lloyd price who had personality yeah so it it's a great song i enjoy singing that today it's a, a great little story attached to it as well so it's um uh it was good i as the time went on you know we're going into like 62 63 64 63 was the beginning was the in a, in a way the end of our era um the original rock and roll era that started in the in the 58, 59, that started to grind down about 63 when the English invasion, what we call the English invasion, started with the, uh, it, turned, uh, it was the bands and then the more English style of um, of uh, singing took over. And uh, as time progressed and went into 64, 65, our, our stuff was virtually over. And it wasn't over because it wasn't any good or because we weren't singing or we weren't um, producing great songs, we were. It, it was that radio decided that they were um, preferred to play this newer style of music, and uh, and played less and less of us.
0: And it still happens today too, I suppose. You, you get uh, the the kids don't want to be listening to the same thing that their older older brother or sisters were listening to, or their parents were listening to. So probably a five year cycle that everything old is new again. And again, they're dictated by the radio stations, and I suppose it's something that has never helped an Australian Australian performers is is radio stations don't seem to back Australian performers. It's probably one of the only countries in the world that we have to have a, a quota that we made to play our own our own musicians. That must be something that sort of upsets you over the time.
3: Yes, it's, it's something that that's, we've taken as as being very very unfair. You know, Johnny O'Keefe and I, in the very early stages, we used to talk about about this, and he uh, he fronted. Um, the government to put to try and put in a quota system and when we were successful at, at the at the time that's been eaten away because record uh because radio stations didn't want to do that they preferred to play other uh, other music that was uh i guess more cutting edge at the time and from overseas they had the, the bigger names attached to them so um th- those quotas got less and less and then they if they didn't get less they pushed them into um uh, midnight to dawn instead of um you know the the, uh, the regular times when people would be listening to radio so in, in a way it doesn't really mean too much um, today at all and it's a great shame There's, there was no reason why that uh, for them to uh, to do that uh, our talent here was certainly no less than what it was from any country whether it be america or england or or any country we were just as uh, just as uh, equipped to um present fans with great
0: music as they were well, exactly, and as you mentioned before, on the uh, the big shows, you you guys are performing with the big American stars, and often showing them up through your own musical chops and your own talent. It's something that's continued on, and I think it's uh, it's called the Great Australian Cringe, and it's it's been around forever and ever and a day. And sadly, I don't think it's uh, it's going to leave us anytime soon. But you know, the Australian musicians of the day of today are still suffering by that you know someone like james rain can release an album radio doesn't want to hear about it they they want to hear the hits of of australian crawl back in the 70s and, and again for a, an artist that's continually such as yourself who's continually um producing and continually putting out out new material it's it's yeah in the end it's not good enough we don't have a say in it basically but yeah it's it's a it's a sad do- indictment on the industry
3: Yes, it is because I'm 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 uh, just like as you mentioned uh, with James Rain and uh, a number of them we're continually putting stuff out. I'm, I'm in the middle of producing great songs and and uh, they'll be produced um, well and they'll be uh, more than likely in in the next three months that'll be. Uh, That'll be out there. But once again, radio, major radio won't uh, play it. They're not interested in uh, in doing it, which is a great shame. Some of the songs, if they fit in with the style of, uh, of radio stations, some of the easy listening listening stations like 2CH, um, they've played um, quite a number of my recent um, um, songs over the last uh, maybe the last 10, 15 years. So um, I thank them um, a lot for doing that. Uh, Pretty much every show I go to, some, some people come up and say, "Oh, we heard your song they, they're still playing your stuff on your new stuff on uh, on 2ch, which is, which is great to, uh, great to hear, but it has to be naturally within the, the easy listening style. So if I recorded something that was a bit too country or a bit too rock and roll or something, well naturally they couldn't play it and no one else would play it except
0: the uh, community stations. Um, just wanted to mention the Lehman, um, you know your backing band, sort of showing the popularity of, of you at the time, Lonnie. The Lehman actually put their own own single out called uh, "Johnny Guitar." This this made the charts, so it's very rare that you get a backing band. Obviously, the DJs did the same with JOK, but it's very rare that you get a uh, a backing band without the front man performing and and still making the charts.
3: Yes, that was um, that was uh, a very rare thing. they were a great band. I mean, I, I ha- I've always had excellent musicians, even right up till today, all my bands have been um, um, you know great musicians individually, and um, I, I, I have a standard that. Uh, always had that uh, always had that standard we decided to uh festival records uh then if you um, um i want to release the the lee men with this uh, with this particular song johnny guitar and they refused to first of all i said no 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 we don't want to uh, do that you know that may not work and blah 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 so in the end i said well you, you, if you don't do it i'm not going to record anymore anyway so in, in a way i i, I uh, forced their hand and uh, and i i had arranged for it to be released at the same time as I released uh, one of mine, I not too, I forget exactly what the song was that I released uh, of mine at the same time. But I did that so that when I went around the radio stations that uh, that we used to do, whenever the song was released, we'd go around the major radio stations and talk to the major DJs, and uh, they would and and uh, they would play the song. So uh, it gave me the opportunity to take the Lee men around with me. And introduce them to the DJs. So uh, that's how that happened. But it was a very successful record. Then I put out a couple of uh, a couple of um, albums, um, EP records after that as well, that were very successful.
0: Here's another two rockin' songs by the Lehman, the Mason Dixon Line, followed by the Huckleback. <laughs> Forged a path that people, many, or well, as they say, you, you dug the well that many people are drinking from today, and it's good to see that you're still getting the the recognition that that you know you were you at the forefront of this.
3: Yeah, well, thank you. It's um, we keep uh, keep on going, and, uh, and and Tamworth, we do that every year. We we do, we do seven shows um There seven uh, seven um, actually daytime shows ten thirty in the morning, so we do uh, do those in the uh, in the festival there, and we're we're the only real rock and roll um, show there out of all the performers and shows that are there. We do very very well every time, and um, so that's good. Plus as well, we're we're floating around Australia all the uh, all the time. Last year we did a couple of shows in Santa Monica in California. We well, uh, later on, uh, and we did, and also uh, last year, I think it was last year or the year before, we did a show in New Delhi in India, and uh, and we expect um, uh, similar things happening uh, this year as well, two thousand and eighteen as well. So, it, uh, hopefully, for us, it will just keep on uh, keep on going.
0: And one thing I hope you might be able to clear up for myself and the listeners: you, it's called a lost album, the Surefire Bet album. Was that actually released?
3: There was a um, yes, it was released, but it was very. Uh, uh, it was right at the time, right at the end, when I um, when I uh, um, decided to leave Festival. I'd had altercations with them, and a part of it was uh, releasing the uh, the Lee Men and other things were well, quite a number of other things were going on, which I'm going I'm outlining in my book. But um, they, um, um, I decided after my contract was over, I decided to leave. I had had an offer from EMI, and uh, who were trying to um, get in, break into the pop market. In the country, they were very big in the country because they had uh, um, um, Slim Dusty and Rick and Thell and uh, all these other country acts, and they were s- selling a lot of records out in the country. But they weren't doing anything with pop, so they were uh, they saw the opportunity there, so they figured that that um, I may be the one to do it. So they offered me um, to go to them, and uh, it was right at the time when I, I I was just not happy and my contract was coming to an end, so I decided to leave Festival and go to them. Now, right at that time, they had scheduled the uh the uh the surefire bet um album to uh to come out. I did see the um the actual um um uh, presentation of it and i and I have seen the uh have seen the, the actual record that the pressing of it so I know it exists but um uh, other than that I don't know too much about it at all. Yeah you're a surefire bet with my lips a surefire bet.
1: When my heart Sure fire a bit To make me start Fall in love with you Cause you've got Everything You make my heart sing You've got those dreamy eyes That promise Paradise And when you Hold my hand Baby it's are oh, so grand. And the odds get
0: So, yeah, if somebody's got that in their collection, they've certainly got a gem, that's for sure.
3: Oh, yes, that'd be a very, very rare thing. Because some of my records, uh, they make a hell of a lot of money to, uh, to some people. In when I was uh, doing some shows in America just a few years ago, I, I'd, I'd perform at a place called... Uh, in florida um just out of um uh disney world a place called uh, uh little darlin's rock and roll palace and i'd go there and i'd do 10 days um at a stretch there and i'd have many many fans who'd come to me then they'd say oh you know we love your stuff and and uh, and, and 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 all this but as far as um uh, the records were concerned they were they would listen to all these uh, all these songs and they'd They'd want to. Uh, they'd want to buy some of them. Some of them they couldn't get because Festival Records wouldn't release them overseas. They wouldn't. Um, uh, there was this whole thing going back to what you were talking about before about the the Australian cringe thing. It was alive and well, even to the point of, um, I guess, in a way, stopping artists being released overseas. You know, a, a one-time um, Buddy Holly's manager um, uh, and producer and, and and co-writer of his uh, of his songs, Norman Petty. He approached me for Starlight Star Bright. He loved Starlight Star Bright, and he said, "I'd love to to uh, release it over there." Now he wasn't a record label. He was a producer in Clovis, New Mexico, and uh, he'd uh, record recorded Buddy Holly and all the different artists there, and then would sell them to a record company, mainly Dot um, uh, Records and, uh, and Cadence and a few other record companies. And so he would he would wanted to do the same with me, but he said, "I want to put strings on Starlight Star Bright." And uh, so he said, I'd, I'd like to do that. So he uh, uh, fronted Festival Records about the percentage that he wanted, that he needed to cover the costs of strings and all that sort of stuff. And Festival Records said, no, we want double that. So um, uh, he said, I can't afford to do it because I, I, I'm not a record company. I'm going to have to on-sell this to a record company who are not going to give me that percentage. But they didn't give a damn. They didn't, didn't care. happened again with me would sit around and talk in Germany they wanted to do the same thing in Germany and me to go to, German, go to Germany and uh, record it in German and they figured it would be a number one song there and Festival Records did the same thing with their percentages so they really didn't even the record companies didn't care let alone um, radio or anyone else
0: because when you mentioned Germany was that around the, um, the Frankfurt special the EP that was released
1: Special. Yeah 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 yeah. Ain't this outfit something special? Go 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 go. Well we heard rumors from the bases. Yeah 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 yeah. Frankfurt girls got pretty faces. Go 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 go. Oh special go. Blow is the blow. Frankfurt special's got a special way to go. Whoa whoa. whoa. Now, when we get the wild hit corners. Yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah, you be good boys and flower awarded. Go, 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 go! Don't take girls from another. No, 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 go, go, go. no! Treat us as like the yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, Go special you go. Blow a whistle, blow! Frankfurt special's got a special way to go.
3: Yes, yeah, sort of around, uh, sort of around that time. Yes, uh, around that. Um, uh, right around that time because, you know, they, they were experiencing great rock and roll themselves, the Germans, that uh, they love rock and roll and so did France. They just, they, well, France had their own, their own hero, um, um, Halliday, you know, and so there was some great, um, great interest there with the rock and roll that we were doing, but unfortunately the record companies, um, they weren't in, all they were interested in was money. They weren't, were not interested in, in uh, forwarding um, uh, the careers um, of any of the artists. Which of course, they were in United States, you know they were they they pushed their artists to every country they could think of If they could sell a record to Nigeria or the moon, they'd be out there doing it, you know, but here no didn't happen
0: and uh, so was that one of the reasons you decided to to leave Australia and head to nashville
3: um Yes, yeah, so to, to to go overseas yeah well my first trip out of here was was to uh, Europe, so I, I, in sixty six so I went out and I, I left um, left Australia because I'd virtually done everything. The um, the, the even the Beatles generation thing was starting to come to an end, it was coming into a, a much more heavier guitar based um, um, type of music in the late uh, the
0: middle, late 60s. So, sort of a Hendrix I, type, sort of Hendrix yeah, that, and the Who and whatnot, yep.
3: Yeah, that sort of stuff was was uh, happening, so it was less melodic, you know, like like uh, the type of the stuff that I sang or Elvis sang or any of us sang, and the, and really the only reason why that Elvis um, uh, survived. During all his time, because he was really the only one that this happened to, was because he had movies going for him all the time, you know. So, and plus as well, he was he was Elvis. Yeah. But still, if it wasn't for for those two factors, um, he would have fallen on the wayside like uh, like uh, most of us did. But I decided because I'd done everything here, I'd had my uh, my own um, 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 agencies here, I'd promoted people like Normie Rowe and, uh, and lots of other people here, I'd produced. Um, Many, many artists like John Rawls, I discovered him and a whole bunch of other things that I'd done. So I thought, well, I've virtually done everything. There's What else is there for me to do except regurgitate um, it? And that was getting harder to do because uh, the younger generations were coming up. So I went to Europe and I was there for uh, for quite some time, came back here to to Australia um, via the the Pacific, did a lot of shows in the Pacific, came back here to in um, um, about 1969 and uh, did the, the Swinger Circuit and managed – um uh, sunshine records for quite some time and then um uh did the swinger circuit which is performing all over australia darwin mount Isa, and or cairns all the different things so, so i was doing that all the time and then uh, in uh, in 71 decided to go to the united states and so that was uh, and then virtually not, not, i didn't stay there but i was virtually stayed there until about 84 i came back to australia a couple of times during that uh, that time but i was based in america most of that time
0: so obviously you've been on many successful tours, but one of the successful tours is um, the rock and roll revival, the good times of rock and roll when uh, yourself and JOK and um, a fair few of the others of the day got together and you started hit, hitting the road again and, and people were, were once again turned on to, to Australian rock and roll, the, the guts and glory of Australian rock.
3: Yes, that was the first time that um, that it was taken seriously again. Uh, prior to that, as I said before, they they stopped playing, radio stopped playing our songs um, and uh, the, the television really didn't do us any uh, favours either and part of that was due to the fact that the primary place of uh, of uh, the artists back in the early stages started in Sydney and then it moved later about 63, 64, moved down to Melbourne and so you had Countdown and most of the artists that made it then were f- were from Melbourne and uh, they didn't want to know anything about the Sydney things because uh, there was this Melbourne-Sydney jealousy they said, "Well, you st- you, you'd, 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 you've had your go; it's our go now." So there was very limited things that we could do on television, um, and and radio weren't playing us because of the music changed, had changed. So of course, um, everything had everything just
0: changed, you know. In a career that stretched almost sixty years and hundreds of songs recorded, here's just a few.
1: You heard me and you made me blue. Why, 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 why? you found someone new Why, 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 why You broke my loving heart in two Bye, 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 bye You hurt me, baby, and you hurt me bad You put me, well, me on the love we had. Why, 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 mm-hmm. bye, 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 bye I begged you, but you told me no Why, 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 why Why did you have to hurt me so Why, 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 why hey would set you go, bye bye. I'd like seem to have set you free. I love you, baby, but you don't love me. Why, why, why?
0: She's Doin' Me Wrong was the B-side to Starlight, Star Bright. This was another song written by the legendary Johnny O'Keefe. This song is as raw as you can get, but it's Australian rock and roll history on wax. It's learning on the run, it's experimental, but what's undeniable is the thumping groove and pulse that just comes from this song. J.O.K., Lonnie Lee, the Deltones, the DJs, this is just pure Aussie rock and roll. (laughs) you also recorded a tribute to Marilyn Monroe. This
1: is a tribute, a tribute to us. Oh, Marilyn, oh, Marilyn. Used to see you on a movie screen, used to dream about you about you all night long, oh Maryland, oh Maryland, now that you're you're travelling down that river, river of no return.
0: Fun in the summer sun.
1: day with a beautiful girl to go to the beach on sunday i can't wait you can bet i won't be late i'll pick her up in my body on time well we'll have fun in the summer sun surfing and i singing with everyone kissing and squeezing in the shade of a tree yeah
0: don't you know pretty baby featuring another great australian rocker warren carr on piano
1: If you'd be just a little bit sweet to me You'd be surprised how happy this boy would be If you try to stop your mess around and flirting Maybe my heart would stop hurting Don't you know, pretty baby, that your daddy's still in love with you
0: SOS. Sad over someone. great titled song, In Love With Australia.
1: She struggled on and found it hard to understand the reason that the difference in skin meant everything, no matter how she tried. But the son she had from her master's bed was destined to have freedom. The first free man from the sunburnt land, now is true. Australia You're the dream of all our sorrows I'm in love with Australia Is Australia in love with me? Is Australia
0: in love with me? And showing, um, you know, your, your business side of, of the rock and roll industry. You're one of the first people to set up your own publishing publishing company, Lonnie Lee Music, and and of course uh, Starlight Records. So it's you've obviously kept your finger in many pies uh, over the years. That's for sure.
3: Yes, I started my first publishing house in uh, in 1960, and that was the first uh, first there, and, and produced a lot of stuff there, and uh, and record companies and things like that. Yeah, and I've just kept on going. And I still have. Um, Starlight Records. Um, now I put all my stuff out on Starlight Records, and uh, and the different books and things we release through Starlight Books. So it's uh, yeah, it's still still going, still still rocking, as they say.
0: There's a, there's a lot of times there where you know it's Australian rock and roll is overlooked for the American stuff, all the all the English stuff, and uh, you know again it's you listen to it and it, it still holds up to today. So
3: yes, well we took it. Ser- I took my stuff very seriously. I took that the songs that I chose to record seriously. I, uh, I took how I produced them seriously. I was, as I said before, I'd, uh, I was very. Um, um, uh uh, very careful about the musicians that I had in my band. They have to be as good as I could possibly find. I did all my arrangements very differently, even right up till today. I may may do a song that somebody else recorded years and years ago, but I, you listen to my version, you listen to theirs. And uh, in some cases it's vastly different, but it is always different. Um, and I do it my style. I don't do it um, to cover anybody else. I, I, I do the song, not so much someone's song, you know, and, uh, Anyway, as I said, it just keeps on going, and I'm very, very lucky that that's the the case.
0: Yeah, exactly, and the long way to the top two was, uh, you know, they were fantastic, and and again, it showed you as the performer that you are, keeping these young guys on their toes, I suppose they're, they're young to you, but, you know, they're... Artists, you know, such as JPY and all these sort of guys, and Billy Thorpe. You know, you were one of the, the star performers in, in in every show that was that was on that tour. And again, it's a, a credit to you and your your musical chops.
3: Well, you know, I, I enjoyed that show. That was a great, a great show. We all, everybody enjoyed it. We we're all very friendly um, together. It Was great. It was like a big, uh, a big family. It was just a shame that it was a once-er. It uh, wasn't, uh, um, you know, put into place again. The idea was that maybe in five years, every five years, they'd do it, but. There was just so much involved in it and so much money to um, uh, to present it and then there were problems with with the promoters um, involved there are a few uh, altercations going on um, behind the scenes so unfortunately that all stopped but it was a great uh, it was a great opportunity and uh, and we all we all everybody enjoyed everybody else's performance
0: and another tour that you were a performer on was the uh, the crash credit tour crash credit was a, a performer that Australia gave his their start to and and you've had a long association with since the the late fifties.
3: Yes, that's right. Exactly since uh, King's Crash, I was on his uh, <coughs> on his show, his Australian show, and we we were friends then, and uh, and we're still friends to, uh, today. You know, we still uh, we're still. I guess maybe every month we're in contact with uh, with one another and the, and families and the and his band and that we're all all in contact with uh, with each other and part, some of my band so it's just a really good friendship, uh, there. Fabian and I, uh, maintained a friendship for many, many years. He's now gone off into other, some other things and, uh, moved away from, uh, from performing, um, a lot now. So, uh, it's less and less that we, uh, we see of, of each other, but, um, it lasted, you know, 50 odd years and, and, and many of the other guys as well, you know, Chan Ramiro, um, I performed within, uh, in 1960 or 59 and, uh, the guy he was the guy that had uh, wrote hippie hippie shake. yeah, so he's uh he's been a friend of mine for years as well. so they're all great guys.
0: and you mentioned fabian um and that's what we're talking about before the hysteria and the pandemonium and-
3: oh yes, well, at, at times the the press thought that he would take over from Elvis you know he, because he was so good looking and all that stuff, but of course he unfortunately he he wasn't a singer. he was taken really just because he was so good looking and uh, and it worked for quite uh, quite some time, got him into movies and uh, and there he was and and Quite recently, he's been in a show in the United States with, um, um, with Bobby Rydell and uh, and a couple of others, Bobby V, before he died, in a show called The Golden Boys in uh, in Branson, Missouri. And they do a few shows uh, in other cities as well. But that's all disbanded now, pretty much.
0: You mentioned you're still performing around the place. You uh, you you're certainly, certainly haven't hung up the guitar. And how often do you perform now?
3: Oh, it really depends. Um, oh, I don't know. I guess maybe... Uh, Maybe last year I could have done maybe uh, maybe 80, 80 shows. eighty Yeah, maybe 80 shows. Um, it, it really, uh, really depends. You know, I'm, I'm spending more and more time, not so much on stage, but uh, behind the stage because I'm preparing all my archives and all my uh, um, uh, recordings and things like that. So there's a, an incredible amount of work. It's like an iceberg. The, the stage part of it is just the very, very top of the iceberg and there's all the stuff underneath it especially since I'm the record company, I'm the publishing company, I'm the, I'm the everything when I say I, you know, we are. And uh, so all the work emanates from, uh, from us. It's not as if I'm just a performer, um, you know, sitting on a boat wandering around the, uh, the Pacific while everybody else is doing the work. Um, we do everything here ourselves. And so it's, there's a lot more than just um, being on stage, although that is the, like the cream on the cake.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's where you get the blast some steam, I suppose. And and when when will your book be released?
3: Well, I'm hoping it seems to be taking forever because there is once again because I'm doing so much. There's so many things that I'm doing. I've got this new record that I CD that I'm I'm uh, I'm putting out. But once again, we're doing, we do everything there. We record a lot of it in my own studio. We uh, we're we're in 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 the um, the throes now of uh, of mixing it, and then we'll be uh, mastering, it, and that'll go out. And then there's Lots of other things that I'm uh, I'm doing as well. I'm hoping that um, the book will come out maybe the mid part of next uh, next year, or certainly the the back end of next year. It's a it's, to me it's a monumental task because there's a, I re- I remember ninety nine and nine tenths of everything, and so to put all this down um, is a is a long haul, and you need you need focus, and you need to be and uh, not have other things pull. Pull you away from it, which at the moment that's what's uh, the last year or two that's what's been happening.
0: The career that you've had, it'll be almost like the, uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica. There'll be half a dozen volumes if you if you put everything into it.
3: Oh yes, I yeah. There's no way. I I know that the the editors finally will go through it and they will sift through it. More than likely, cut it in half. Um, um, I anticipate um, that I'll present uh, to them more than likely, more than likely, eight hundred pages. But I would uh, envisage that by the time it hits the uh, it hits the stores, we'd be down to maybe 350, 400 pages, which I think is the normal, the normal uh, biography type thing.
0: And uh, one last question, Lonnie. It's uh, Matt Taylor's sitting at the Trocadero, listening to Lonnie Lee. When was the first time you heard that song?
3: Well, they sent it to me, and they said we've got a surprise for you. And they sent they sent it to me, and I played it. I nearly fell on the floor. It was just wonderful. And they're wonderful guys. The guys in Chain are super, super talented, and uh, and, and just absolutely lovely guys. Matt Taylor is a gem. Um, there's just no doubt in the world about it. he's a, a, a gem. That unfortunately um, uh, he's not given the kudos that he uh, he he should be given. Uh, and at, at the very early stages, and, of course, Phil Manning and his brilliant guitar playing and, and both of them writing the songs and Dirk with his, uh, with his fantastic bass playing, that, they're, they're a wonderful uh, band. Their, their music is just so incredibly exciting. And uh, it's, it's not just the music it's exciting, it's the words. If you listen to the words of their songs, um, it's very Australian. That's why they call them, the Australia's super super blues band, and that's very true. And when I heard the song that he wrote, um about me the um, um saturday night watched uh, at the trocadero watching lonnie lee i thought this is just in this is really really amazing i uh, other than being incredibly flattered by it and feeling very very undeserving that uh, a song should be written about me but i uh the words itself were, were great they even conjured up in me and it was about me but it conjured up in me going out to the trocadero and watching somebody you know um uh, performing and remembering it years later on. It's, uh, I was very flattered.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's a great honor. And, and again, it's something well deserved, Lonnie. And thank you very much for your time. And keep on rocking and um, we'll, we'll do a part two down the track.
3: Okay, thank you, Sharon It's lovely to talk with you. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Lonnie. Thanks for listening. And thanks for your time, Lonnie. And thanks to Lonnie Lee and the Lee Men for the music. If you enjoyed the episode, please click subscribe. And if you could leave a review or rating at iTunes, that would be unreal. If you have any guest requests or suggestions, you can email me at mycoast2 at bigpond.com. That's M-Y-C-O-A-S-T, the number 2, at bigpond.com. Or like our Facebook page at All Australian Music Stories. I'd like to thank you again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. And until next time, hail, hail, Australian rock and roll.
5: Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Mycos Promotions. Written, produced and presented by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid. This is Molly Kid saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl! a place that I've been to and now now I know